This is what was heard in California state court this morning. At 2.27 a.m. on October 28th, a 911 dispatcher responded to a call from San Francisco. It was a strange call because the caller was clearly in distress. But with the assailant still nearby, he was trying to sound as if he was placing an ordinary phone call and, and not an emergency plea for help. This is how it went. Quote, dispatcher, who is this? Do you need help? Caller, there is a gentleman here waiting for my wife to come, waiting for my wife to come back. She's not going to be here for days, so I guess we will have to wait. Dispatcher, do you need police or fire? Caller, I don't think so. Is the Capitol Police around? They are usually here at the house protecting my wife. Dispatcher, no, this is San Francisco Police. Caller, no, I understand. Okay, okay, well, what do you think? I've got a problem, but he says everything is good. The gentleman came into the house. Dispatcher, do you know who the person is? Caller, no, I don't know who he is. He told me not to do anything. Dispatcher, what is your address, sir? What is your name? Caller, my name is Paul Pelosi. In court today, prosecutors presented evidence against David DePap, the man who broke into House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's home in October and attacked her husband, Paul. Prosecutors showed body cam video of DePap attacking Pelosi with a hammer. And that 911 call you just heard an excerpt of, that was Paul Pelosi doing his best to subtly inform the dispatcher that something was wrong without tipping off the man who had just invaded his home. One of the San Francisco police officers who responded to that call took the stand today to describe what he saw when he got to Pelosi's home, both Pelosi and DePap holding a hammer. When the officer told them to drop it, body cam video played in court showed DePap saying, quote, nope. He then began to violently assault Paul Pelosi with the hammer. After today's hearing, the judge ruled that the prosecution has sufficient evidence for DePap to stand trial. He faces state charges for attempted murder, battery, assault, plus other federal charges. Beyond the extremity of the crime, what's remarkable in all of this is just how calm Paul Pelosi was and how his wife has calmly and resolutely dealt with the attack on her family while continuing her work as Speaker of the House, even as certain Republicans have actively made fun of this assault or chosen to ignore it entirely or have otherwise just not grasped the gravity of what happened there. Today, Paul Pelosi attended a congressional ceremony for his wife, Nancy, whose official portrait as the 52nd Speaker of the House was unveiled today. Congressional leaders, both past and present, including former Republican Speaker of the House John Boehner, gathered to celebrate the first woman speaker who is leaving leadership on January 3rd of next year. This is how former Speaker Boehner described his relationship with Speaker Pelosi. Uh, Madam Speaker, you and I have uh, disagreed uh, politically on many things over the years, but we were never disagreeable to each other. Madam Speaker, I have to say, my girls told me Tell the speaker how much we admire her. You've been incredibly effective as the leader of your caucus. You know, the younger generation today has a saying, game recognizes game. Now, now that is a former Republican Speaker of the House who was today able to walk the bridge of bipartisanship and say something nice about a Democrat. Game recognizes game which is behavior that is honestly sort of unimaginable in the present Republican House caucus. And John Boehner made a good point. 
Speaker Pelosi does get things done, a lot of them. Pelosi's legacy, her ability to unite a boisterous Democratic Party and basically keep them in legislative lockstep, stands in, shall we say, stark contrast to her aspiring Republican successor, Kevin McCarthy, who is seeing his caucus come apart at the seams. And while McCarthy figures out whether he will even have enough votes to become speaker in January, his party is becoming ever more extreme. Already, House Republicans say they plan to investigate Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Yesterday, 20 Republican members of Congress gathered to call for impeaching the secretary. That group included Congressman Andy Biggs, who has announced, by the way, that he will challenge Kevin McCarthy for the speakership. Other Republicans in the conference, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, have called for investigating Speaker Pelosi over the allegedly unfair treatment of January 6th defendants. And Kevin McCarthy, what's he doing in all this? He is showing willingness to entertain these requests. Despite previously saying that no Biden official deserved to be impeached, McCarthy is now calling for Mayorkas to resign. And today he defended his colleagues in the House who defied subpoenas from the January 6th committee. Are you concerned that you or any of your colleagues may be referred for criminal contempt for ignoring this? I'll answer your last question first. No, no, no. We did nothing wrong. I'm not so sure about that. Because this week, we learned that 34 Republican members of Congress were texting White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows with strategies and conspiracy theories, all in an attempt to keep Donald Trump in office after he lost the 2020 election. And even a growing wing of the party, even as this happens, even as they are threatening to tank his ascension, Kevin McCarthy is willing to make concessions just to hold the speaker's gavel. All while the standard, the party's standard bearer, Donald Trump, is whipping votes for McCarthy. The New York Times reports that Trump has been working the phones to press House Republicans to vote McCarthy for speaker. But even Trump cannot seem to stem this revolt. The opposing Republicans' top demand of McCarthy has been a snap vote to push out the speaker at any time, which is a lot like electing someone under the provision that they can be unelected at any time. It is not exactly a win which is probably why Kevin McCarthy has said he is not down for that. As far as his secret weapon, Donald Trump, well, Trump is less popular than ever. 61% of Republican voters say they would prefer a different nominee run with Donald Trump's policies over just Donald Trump himself. And that might be why Trump is teasing a major announcement tomorrow, writing on Truth Social, quote, America needs a superhero. The problem here, of course, is more Republican voters appear to think that hero is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and not Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis is trouncing Donald Trump in hypothetical matchups. And DeSantis is also leaning further into conspiracy theories than Trump has, recently announcing a state investigation of Pfizer and Moderna for allegedly misleading Floridians about COVID vaccines and telling Fox News viewers about that the benefits of vaccination are minuscule. None of this is true, but it plays well with a certain part of the Republican base, even if it threatens the health and safety of all Americans. Republicans seeking power are willing to play requests, all of them, to get that power, come what may. 
Joining us now to discuss all this is Congressman Ruben Gallego of Arizona, who is considering a challenge to Senator Kristen Sinema in 2024. And he has just returned recently from a bipartisan congressional delegation to Ukraine. Congressman Gallego, it's great to have you tonight. I just want to start first with the events of the day as far as the former, the soon to be former speaker and potentially the, the coming speaker. Um, I was drawn to this New York Times piece analyzing the ways in which Nancy Pelosi skillfully consolidated votes mm. to make sure she was elected Speaker of the House. And I just want to read this back to you. Ms. Pelosi, in 2018, when she was challenged for the speakership, she won seven votes by agreeing to limit her tenure. She picked up another eight by promising to implement rules aimed at fostering more bipartisan legislating and won over her sole would-be challenger by creating a subcommittee chairmanship for her. At no point did she have to endorse big lies or impeachment proceedings. She was able to pretty masterfully consolidate power. Could you contrast the, the speakership of Nancy Pelosi with the attempt to gain the speakership on the part of Kevin McCarthy. Yes, I can, because I actually led one of the um, uh, leadership challenges to her in the post-2016 election, uh, where we tried to actually have someone else come in and take over, someone named Tim Ryan, who we all know now. Uh, and she skillfully uh, was able to you know, blunt our efforts at the end of the day, was able to really bring the caucus together uh, and, uh, you know, get the votes that she needed and really not only uh, get the votes, but over the next two years after that, uh, essentially win a lot of us people that were still doubting her leadership over. Uh, and so that is a skillful politician, a skillful person that actually leads with values and that actually believes first in America and then tries to put the coalition around that to really push forward. Now, you contrast with some, someone like McCarthy, who is just a very vapid politician who cares first about power, but not necessarily what you do with that power. And he will sell whoever it is, whatever cause it is, in order for him to get that title uh, of speakership, uh, of being speaker. Uh, but not necessarily know how to yield that power in a way that actually benefits everyday Americans. And there's a reason why he has to go through these extraordinary steps versus someone who, like Speaker Pelosi, who did it and did it consistently and really won over a lot of her opponents because she led with true American values instead of the, the vapid, vacuous nature that uh, I think Kevin McCarthy does. I mean, there also seems, of course, there is a difference between the two respective caucuses, right? I mean, Democrats were not calling for cabinet secretaries to be impeached and were not in on a conspiracy to overthrow the government, right? Okay, so we'll set that aside. But there seems to be a, a really true character difference that you're alluding to, which is the strength of Nancy Pelosi contrasted with the inherent weakness of Kevin McCarthy. And, you know, Donald Trump is the person mm -hmm. that says what, you know, I, I don't know if he said this verbatim, but he's always suggested that you can't be weak because when people smell weakness, they will take advantage of you. And it seems like That's the Republican true. caucus knows that Kevin McCarthy is hopelessly endlessly weak and are taking advantage of him in this moment. I mean, what do you think that portends for his speakership if he does actually get the gavel? Well, look, I think what it portends is that if he is speaker, it's he's only speaker in name. When you have to compromise yourself, compromise your values and, and give up so much power, then essentially you're making a lot of other people below you more powerful than you are. Uh, so you're just, you have the title, but you actually don't have the leadership, the gravitas to actually lead your caucus. So what does that mean? Well, that's a very dangerous situation for this country because in, in tough times, you need someone to actually lead, uh, you know, with true values. 
uh, with with courage uh, and not really think about these types of kind of base uh, political decisions, uh, which is going to unfortunately happen. Uh, the, Kevin McCarthy is not going to be able to eat us out of the debt limit fight. He's not going to be able to keep the government open. Uh, all these kind of things that are going to be very consequential to everyday Americans, he's going to mess up. Number one, because he doesn't have it in him. Number two, intellectually, he is definitely not there. And number three, because he has zero leadership skills except for knowing how to maybe, uh, you know, ameliorate some people here and there. But that does not mean you're a leader. It means that you know how to suck up to people. That's not how you can actually lead a caucus and protect this country at the same time. I have to ask you, because your name has been in the news recently with regards to the other chamber, the upper chamber, which is the, the fact that Kristen Sinema has announced she's going to be an independent. Do you intend to challenge her in 2024? And, and do you think that this could result in chaos? Well, look, we're doing everything we uh, need to do to get ourselves in the position to make the decision for 2024. Uh, and I'm going to go back to Arizona and do something that she doesn't do, which actually is talk to Arizonans uh, and have very frank conversations about what they need to see the future of Arizona look like and what values they want their candidates to, to look like. And no, I don't believe this is chaos. It's not chaotic to have democracy. Having three people run and talking about what they see the future uh, should look like, what you know we should be walk, uh, working for when it comes to fighting for American uh, families. Uh, it, it's not chaotic. That's, that's called democracy. It's, it's an okay thing. Uh, and I certainly believe that when Democrats, because we have in the last uh, three cycles, when we talk about our vision, what we can bring to everyday working families to make sure their lives are a little better, to make sure that you can live the American dream, I think when we do that, we're going to win. You, I, I think the recent polling shows you, I don't know if this is an official polling term, but whomping her in a prospective matchup, 74 to 16 percent. Is that math correct? 58 point margin. Um, you have said previously that you think if she does run, she would pull votes maybe away from Republicans and not actually eat into the Democratic base of support in the state of Arizona. Do you stand by that? Do you think that the vote is strong enough for Democrats that her candidacy as an independent wouldn't actually make a difference? Well, number one, I think the reason it doesn't make a difference is because she's so deeply unpopular with Democrats and not because she left the party, because you know, her values have not aligned with everyday working Arizonans for quite a while. Uh, you know, she's more likely to meet with lobbyists than she is with constituents. She's there to fight for, you know, hedge fund managers instead of Arizona farmers. Uh, you know, instead of talking about our, you know, retirees and what they need to do to reduce their pharmaceutical uh, costs, she's actually more likely to work with farmers to make sure those costs stay high. I don't care who you are. You could be a Democrat, you could be a Republican, you could be independent. Those values don't align with Arizona. So she can try to play the games that she wants. She's certainly not going to get many votes from the Democrats. I doubt that she's going to also be able to get some from the independents and good luck with Republicans. But I still don't actually believe Republicans actually really you know, want to go to fight uh, for farm at the end of the day. I believe that's called living in no man's land. Something Kevin McCarthy may be familiar with. Congressman Ruben Gallego of Arizona. Thanks for making the time tonight, Congressman. Thank you. Have a good night. Coming up, it was 10 years ago that a gunman killed 20 first graders and six educators at Sandy Hook Elementary School in what President Obama called the single darkest day of his presidency. Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, who has led the fight for gun safety reform in the upper chamber, joins me next to discuss the modern anti-gun violence movement born in the aftermath of that tragedy and the progress made and not made in the intervening decade. That's coming up next.
Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. Hey everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. I know there's not a parent in America who doesn't feel the same overwhelming grief that I do. The majority of those who died today were children. Uh, Beautiful little kids between the ages of five and 10 years old. They had their entire lives ahead of them, birthdays, graduations, weddings, kids of their own. That was a scene at the White House 10 years ago today, when a 20-year-old man armed with an AR-15-style semi-automatic rifle walked into an elementary school in Newtown, Connecticut, and killed 20 children and six adults. President Obama reflected on that moment at a benefit for the victims of Sandy Hook last week. I consider December 14th, 2012, the single darkest day of my presidency. And like so many other people, I felt not just sorrow, but I felt anger, fury at a world that could allow such a thing to happen. The former president's sorrow and his anger is something that people across the country share, and especially in the face of a gun violence epidemic that continues today. The children who died at Sandy Hook that day would be 16 and 17 years old this December. They would be preparing to enter their final years in high school. In the decades since their murder, mass shootings in America have nearly tripled, according to the nonprofit Gun Violence Archive. We've seen people gunned down at grocery stores, in nightclubs, and even another elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. We have watched Republican lawmakers in the very same state not just fail to act, but actually work to make it easier to obtain a weapon in this country. All that as the conservative majority on the Supreme Court has blunted the ability of states like New York to pass their own gun safety provisions. But this decade since the Newtown tragedy has also brought some cause for optimism. The right-wing provocateur Alex Jones, who spread conspiracy theories about the Sandy Hook shooting being a hoax, he has been ordered by a judge to pay more than $1 billion to the families of those victims as part of a defamation lawsuit. The once-powerful NRA has been hobbled by a lawsuit in New York State and by its own financial mismanagement. And this summer, President Biden signed into law the first bipartisan gun safety legislation in decades. 
So the 10 years since the horrific events at Sandy Hook have been punctuated by moments of darkness, but also moments of light. And while every year on the anniversary of Newtown, Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy delivers a speech on the Senate floor decrying America's gun violence problem, this year he expressed some optimism about what has been done and what's ahead. What we communicated this summer to those kids and the parents is that we care. Our answer isn't nothing. Right? And so as much as I experienced this as a father, um, I also know that we've made progress. And that progress has been logistical and practical, but it's also been metaphysical. Um, it's been emotional. What we did this summer just gave kids in this country, parents in this country, a little bit of, a little bit of a feeling that, right, we're going to be there for them and hopefully more in the future. Joining us now is the Democratic senator from Connecticut, Chris Murphy. Senator, thanks for joining me tonight. I think it's really important that this conversation be different than the traditional conversation on gun, gun safety and gun violence, which is to say, let us talk about the points of optimism. And I want to start there with you first. What are you feeling good and I would say best about when it comes to gun violence in this country and the progress we're making on that issue? Well, Alex, thanks for having me on. I, I think today on this 10-year mark of Sandy Hook, the thing that I feel best about is uh, the difference that the families have made. Um, those families in Sandy Hook, many of them became politically active and they're responsible in part for the success that we had this summer. But they've also started up charitable organizations, not-for-profits that have just sought to make their community's life better. And so there's a lot of good that has come from those families. Uh, that's what makes me optimistic today. But um, as I said today in my speech, speech, um, it is true that finally, 10 years later, um, we have built a movement to make our schools and our communities safer that is now more powerful than the gun lobby. In 2013, the year after Sandy Hook, we lost a bill uh, trying to strengthen our gun laws. Uh, this summer, uh, we passed a comprehensive measure that, as we speak, is saving lives. And I feel like we are entering a period of time now where the anti-gun violence movement uh, is going to win consistently at the federal level and at the state level. We've had 500 different laws passed tightening our nation's firearms statutes at the state level. Um, so I stand here today, you know, just it's painful to think back as to what happened 10 years ago. It's, it's hurtful for those families to know that it took 10 years for Congress to act in a meaningful way. But I think we're entering a moment in which we are going to be able to get consistent wins to make our country safer. And that's a credit, um, first and foremost, to many of those families from Sandy Hook who have become part of this movement, leaders in this movement, even amidst their deep sorrow and grief. Senator, in your remarks on the floor today, you were invoking parenthood. And um, I know you had little kids at the time of Newtown who are now adolescents. And children, students, have been at the forefront of so much of the activism around gun safety. I wonder what your own kids, like, what, what is the conversation at home with a father who represents the state of Connecticut, site of one of the most horrific tragedies as far as school shootings? You know, do they think that you slash the upper chamber have done enough? Do they feel the same optimism that you do? So I think part of the reason why we were able to break through this summer is because Republicans and Democrats went back to their states after Uvalde and Buffalo and really saw a level of anxiety and fear that they'd never seen before. Um, parents were just 
absolutely beside themselves thinking about the idea that even after Uvalde and Sandy Hook, that Congress is going to do nothing. And it was really a test of democracy in some ways, which is why I think we got just enough Republicans to step up and uh, and help us. Um, as a parent, obviously, I experienced this through my kids. And I think every kid deals with it differently. My older child tonight was just talking about sort of what it feels like to walk through metal detectors every day when he walks into his metal school. And he's kind of I just think he's used to it at this point. But my younger son, when he went through his first active shooter drill as a kindergartner, it rattled him. He didn't know exactly why it was happening, but he knew enough to tell me, you know, Daddy, I just didn't like that, being packed into a bathroom like sardines with 26 of his classmates. I think every kid reacts differently to it, but um, uh, many of them um, are going through trauma because they walk into school every day and they fear for their lives. And for those kids, um, we owe it to them to try to change that daily existence. Um, what of the bipartisan gun safety bill uh, that President Biden signed into law this summer? I know that you and some of your colleagues have been briefed on how that law is working. Can you tell us anything about the measurable difference it may or may not be making? So I got a really uh, compelling briefing from the Department of Justice about two weeks ago on the implementation of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. No, it doesn't do everything we want. It's not universal background checks. It's not a ban on assault weapons. But the Department of Justice staffers who came in, and these weren't, you know, presidential appointees. These were the folks that implement the background checks laws. They were really excited to tell me about this bill because they had evidence that it had saved lives. Uh, they had stopped people from buying weapons that clearly were dangerous, that were threatening harm against themselves or others um, because of this law. Um, we now have a much more substantial background check for younger purchasers of firearms. We don't sell guns to any domestic abusers any longer. We're helping states implement red flag laws. This is the law that allows states to take guns away temporarily from people who actually have made threats against the school or threats against themselves. And what I learned is that just in the first few weeks of implementation, lives have been saved. So, of course, we have a lot more to do, but we should be proud of the fact that this movement, that, that so many just rank-and-file regular Americans help, have helped to build, got a bill passed this summer that is absolutely stopping mass shootings, homicides, and suicides, literally as we speak. In addition to the legislative work, you also have been talking about the sort of systemic issues that we have to address as a society. And I was really struck by an op-ed you wrote in The Bulwark yesterday about our epidemic of loneliness and the ways in which loneliness leads us into very dark and oftentimes violent, angry corners. I'll just read an excerpt. America was shocked in 2017 when a white supremacist rally in Charlottesville drew thousands. But this should have been no surprise. Loneliness is driving people to dark, dangerous places, and those young white men carrying tiki torches are only the tip of a giant iceberg of isolated, angry people whose search for meaning might lead them to, into a seething anti-Semitic or racist mob. Is this, is this part of what's to explain the extremism that we're seeing play out in the political arena? I mean, and to what do you, do, do you agree? Do you think that this, these ideas about loneliness are shared by your uh, colleagues across the aisle? Well, I'm really honored you read that piece. Um, I think that a path to finding common ground between Republicans and Democrats is just spending more time 
thoughtfully inspecting the problems in this country. I think if we really spent time digging into what's hurting Americans, um, we could more easily then make the next transition to solutions. I really think loneliness is an enormous problem in this country. The data tells us that today, 30% of Americans feel intense loneliness, 10% 30 years ago, 60% of teenagers feel lonely. And it's totally, it doesn't make sense, right? Because we have so many more ways to connect with each other. There's something about online existence that actually is driving feelings of isolation. And the withering away of communities, of community institutions, of downtowns, all of those opportunities we used to have to connect with human beings in person, they're gone. We now buy our groceries, you know, and we do our shopping online. Um, We've got to talk about this epidemic of isolation and loneliness. And yes, Alex, I do think that Republicans and Democrats both agree that this is a problem. And I think if we really spend the time thinking about how people feel in this country, um, we might have an easier time getting to those solutions. Because I bet you Republicans and Democrats um, both care about restoring the health of churches and local civic clubs. Uh, both Republicans and Democrats are talking about regulating social media to have more healthy experiences for our teens. So I think there's common ground there. And I'm glad that people are paying attention to this piece I wrote the other day about loneliness and isolation. I, a- I, I learned a lot writing it. It's a really beautifully written piece. It's a very deeply thoughtful piece about um, reclaiming our shared humanity. And I think, you know, now and especially a day like today is a time to to read it if you haven't. Senator Chris Murphy, thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. Coming up, President Biden is reportedly poised to grant President Zelensky's biggest wish. We'll tell you what it is. But first, what is this little house in a safe, sleepy town in New Hampshire have to do with Russia's brutal war on Ukraine. I will tell you all about it. Stay with us. Here on MSNBC, we are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. I looked out the window and there was FBI agents up and down the road from all different states. Things like that don't happen in Merrimack, New Hampshire. It's crazy. The small town of Merrimack, New Hampshire, only has about 27,000 residents. It's primarily known for good schools and being a safe, sleepy, suburban little slice of Americana, which is what makes what happened in this house so unbelievable. Federal prosecutors allege that this house with the adorable inflatable Santa and the reindeer and the frosted the snowman outside, federal prosecutors allege this house was a key stop in a global Russian military-grade weapons parts smuggling ring. This man 
lawful permanent resident of the United States, Alexi Brayman, runs a small business that sells quirky nightlights at craft fairs and on sites like Etsy. You could get a New England Patriots nightlight or a Celtics one or an Iron Man one. The business actually makes a pretty wide variety of these things. But yesterday, federal prosecutors indicted Alexi Brayman, alleging that while he was packing up and shipping out those fun nightlights for his Etsy shop, he was also packing up and shipping out weapons parts. Prosecutors allege the Brayman's home has been a clearinghouse for expensive semiconductors, oscilloscopes, and other items bound for Russia. Items that experts said are commonly used in weapons systems, including those used in the country's ongoing war with Ukraine. Essentially, the allegation here is that the Russian government would need a part for a weapon system that they couldn't get because of U.S. sanctions. They would then pay this Russian company called Cernia to get those parts for them. Cernia would create front companies and wire money into the United States. The smuggling group would then buy the needed technology and send it to this Etsy nightlight shop in suburban New Hampshire. Then Alexei Brayman would allegedly falsify shipping labels about what he was sending and ship those parts out of the country to middlemen who would then smuggle them in to Russia. As an example, one of the Brayman's apparent middlemen was a Russian national and suspected FSB agent in Estonia, who authorities say would then smuggle the goods across the border into Russia. Estonian police caught that middleman trying to cross into Russia this October. In his vehicle, they found 35 different types of semiconductors and other electrical components, along with thousands of six and a half millimeter sniper bullets manufactured by a Nebraska-based company. Last week, that middleman was arrested in Estonia. The New Hampshire man and another New Jersey man involved in this alleged scheme have both since posted bond. The four others indicted all Russian nationals still remain at large. It is all pretty amazing. And it also shows just how desperate Russia is for weapons in this war. We are going to have more on that and some potential good news for Ukraine's defenses coming up next. If there is anything that Ukraine has shown the world, it is that its military can fend for itself with the right resources. And with those resources, that military puts up a very good fight, even when outnumbered. That became evident this summer when the U.S. sent Ukraine high-mobility artillery rockets, known as HIMARS. The weapon did what it was supposed to do. It hit its targets, and the Ukrainian forces did what they were supposed to do. They fired the rockets where it mattered. Together, they effectively changed the direction of this war. General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said back in September, HIMARS strikes had hit more than 400 Russian targets, including command posts and ammunition depots. The attacks on command facilities have kept Russian leaders on the move and have disrupted their communications, making it more difficult for them to direct combat operations. None of this is what Russian President Putin was expecting. If anything, Putin thought the whole Ukraine chapter was going to be a very short one, a 10-day operation that Russia would easily dominate. But almost 10 months into this war, 10 months, Ukraine has defied even the wildest expectations. But those successes have come at a price. Russia's ground forces have not been able to defeat Ukraine, but the battle in the air, that is an entirely different matter. Using primarily Iranian-made drones, Putin's soldiers have been hitting Ukraine's energy infrastructure indiscriminately, plunging much of that country into cold and darkness right as winter begins. Close to 50 percent of the country's energy facilities have already been affected by Russian attacks, and the remaining 50 percent remain under constant threat of bombardment. Now, hitting civilian areas and infrastructure is a war crime, but Russia clearly does not care about that. 
Today, Putin's soldiers fired 13 Iranian-made drones into Kyiv. Local authorities said the drones were directed at the city and regional key infrastructure, but were all intercepted by Ukraine. As Russia continues to launch these attacks, Ukrainian officials have intensified their pleas for more sophisticated air defense system, systems, all while the U.S. has been reluctant to do so. And yet, several outlets are now reporting that the Biden administration may just be ready to send in the Patriots. Not the Super Bowl winners, though. I'm sure President Zelensky would welcome them, too. These patriots right here. These patriots. The Patriot is the most advanced ground-based air defense system in the American stockpile. It relies on sophisticated radar technology that can detect incoming threats miles away. It flies as high as 79,000 feet, and it can be ready to strike in a matter of seconds. Depending on the missile used, it can also destroy enemy aircraft about 100 miles away. President Biden still has to approve this transfer, and there are a lot of outstanding questions about how to deliver and train Ukrainian forces to use the system. But having Patriot missile systems in Ukraine, even just one of them, could make a serious difference in terms of protecting the country's power infrastructure. Russia quickly reacted to the news of all of this, saying the Patriots will likely become a legitimate target. But they did say the same thing about HIMARS, and, well, some of those are still standing. That's not to dismiss the seriousness and ongoing dangers of this war. And on that front, Putin recently warned that Russia may consider using nuclear weapons as a preventative measure, and the arrival of the patriots could be seen as a provocation. The bigger point, though, is that Ukraine needs them. President Zelensky and Ukrainian officials have been asking for these systems for months. It is his biggest wish, if you will. And with any luck, it could arrive in time for Christmas. Joining us now is Mason Clark. He's the lead Russian analyst at the Institute for the Study of War. Mason, I appreciate you taking the time here to explain a, a weapon system that I think some of us may remember patriots from the Gulf War. But the technology seems pretty effective when you're looking at what's happening in Ukraine. How do you see this changing the game over there for Zelensky versus Putin? Absolutely. So as you noted, due to their failures on the battlefield, the Russians have switched to trying to target Ukrainian critical infrastructure in a likely misguided effort to force the Ukrainian population to surrender or force Zelensky to sue for peace, which is not going to happen. But even the strikes that are making it through and hitting Ukrainian targets are having really dire effects on the Ukrainian government's ability to provide for its citizens in the winter. And already, U Ukraine has a pretty high rate of shooting down Russian missiles. They shot down in November 70% of their cruise missiles and 80% of those Iranian-provided drones, according to their own figures. But even those that have gotten through have caused a lot of damage. Getting these additional systems from the United States that are even more advanced will allow Ukraine to further reinforce its defenses around major cities such as Kyiv, and possibly even more importantly, send some of their existing air defense systems closer to the front lines where they can fight back against Russian airstrikes and have a more immediate impact uh, on the fighting. Do you think there's any doubt that the Biden administration is going to send these over? And could some of these systems already be there? I mean, we know we have patriots in other parts of Europe. Do you think that they may repo them? to Ukraine or 
I don't think that the Biden administration uh, will, at this point, fail to send the systems forward. It may still take quite some time. Uh, there's a good chance that some of the existing systems in Europe will be redeployed into Ukraine, rather than systems that are here in the continental United States being sent all the way over. However, Ukrainian crews are going to need to be trained on the Patriots, which is going to take a number of months, and that'll likely happen at existing U.S. bases in Germany, most likely. I would be very surprised if that is already ongoing, considering the reticence that the White House uh, and the Department of Defense have had for quite some time uh, about providing these systems. So it's very likely that this won't kick in and have active effects in Ukraine for some months. Uh, but it is very good uh, and will be helpful to Ukraine that the process is starting now. How does Putin take this? I mean, he's had a lot of he's been ratcheting up the rhetoric. Does this have an escalatory effect? I mean, do, do we've been saying the phrase Armageddon and nuclear war off and on throughout this war. But does this have a measurable effect on that? Sure. Well, the first thing I would note is that we still think it's incredibly unlikely that Putin will use nuclear weapons in Ukraine at this point, and certainly not against the U.S. and NATO. The thing is that there isn't really much Putin can do to escalate here. The strikes against Ukrainian critical infrastructure were the escalation that he kept threatening uh, after his battlefield losses, and these are designed to prevent those further. The Russians are struggling to get forces to the front lines. They're likely going to try and continue attacks uh, into January and February as they pull together more reinforcements. But I don't really see there being a chance of this leading to some new Russian escalation. Uh, and it's very important to remember how many times throughout this war the Kremlin has stated red lines such as this and then backed down from them or not been able to follow through with them. They've claimed any number of Western-provided systems have been legitimate targets and then, as you noted, been unable to strike them like those HIMARS systems. Yeah, you really dismantle the efficacy of a red line if you keep crossing it yourself. I got to ask, though, if the Patriot system is going to take months to train um, Ukrainian fighters on, and that puts us in the spring, what's, what happens this winter? How do you see this war playing out? I mean, the Ukrainian people are dealing with just an, uh, freezing conditions. What they are suffering through is, I mean, the gravity of it shouldn't be, um, it can't be overstated. How, how do you see the next couple months play out in this war? Sure. So the Russians are still conducting a pretty ineffective attacks in eastern Ukraine, particularly around this one city called Bakhmut that they've been focused on uh, doggedly for quite some months with very few gains. What we're actually likely going to see is some form of further uh, Ukrainian counterattack like we saw earlier this fall in Kherson and before that in Kharkiv. One interesting aspect of the fighting in uh, Ukraine and eastern Europe more generally is that while the conditions are bad right now due to mud and cold temperatures, when the ground completely freezes, in late December and into January, it actually becomes easier to conduct armored warfare as tanks don't get bogged down in the mud. And the Ukrainians were seeing them likely preparing for further offensive operations uh, in that deepest winter period. However, that, of course, doesn't mitigate the suffering of Ukrainian civilians. Um, and the Russian strikes are continuing to inflict uh, costs on the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian population, though the sort of great irony of this war is that all Putin has done has eliminated any shred of uh, pro-Russian sentiment in Ukraine. And I don't see this doing what Putin wants it to, a force in Ukraine to surrender. Yeah, the fact that we're talking about this 10 months later is ind an indication of that. Mason Clark, lead Russian analyst at the Institute for the Study of War. Thanks for ma <clears throat> making time for us tonight, Mason. We'll be right back. 
Other than Herschel Walker's Senate dreams, a possible casualty of Georgia's recent runoff elections could be the runoffs themselves. Today, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger called for lawmakers in the state to end general election runoffs because of how often Georgia voters have to head to the polls for these elections. File that under G, you think? Last week's election was the state's third runoff in two years. When NBC News asked Secretary Raffensperger to explain his opposition to runoffs, his office responded by saying that poll workers are burned out and that everybody, just everybody, hates these things. Again, file that under G, you think? What they failed to mention was that Georgia's restrictive voting law, SB202, helped make the runoff election cycle a whole lot more miserable this year. That law, which was passed by the Republican-controlled legislature and signed by the Republican governor, shortened the period between the general and runoff election from nine weeks to four and reduced the number of early voting days from 16 to five. So now the Republican secretary of state is trying to solve for a problem created by Republican legislators by pushing to change the threshold for winning the general election from 50 to 45 percent of the vote and starting a ranked choice instant runoff so voters won't have to go back to the polls, which all sounds pretty reasonable and also begs the question, why does Georgia even have runoff elections in the first place? That is thanks to this guy a state lawmaker and staunch segregationist named Denmark Groover. When he lost his House race in 1958, data from the segregated polling places showed that black voters had turfed him out of office. And after he won back his seat in 1964, Groover proposed the runoff system to break up what he called, quote, the Negro voting bloc. See how this works? If Georgia lawmakers take Raffensperger's suggestion and change the threshold for winning office, they wouldn't just be fixing a bunch of problems caused by their own discriminatory voting law. They could also end up tossing out an electoral relic of Jim Crow in the process. Who said irony wasn't also comedy? That does it for us tonight.